Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Let's face it, indoor agriculture consumes massive amounts of energy. Between cooling high-intensity grow lights and regulating climate in large facilities, electric bills can run a successful grow operation into the red. If this sounds familiar, I can tell you that you need a powerful climate control system that won't drain your green. I'm Eric Riccardi with Blue Mountain Energy. Our state-of-the-art HVAC systems are powered by natural gas and propane, which means you can reduce your electricity use by as much as 80% and get your grow operation back in the black and maximize your growing space. Visit BlueMountainEnergy.com to schedule your free energy assessment and see how Blue Mountain Energy can put that green back in your pocket. And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, returning from a rather long hiatus to take care of my family. I'm grateful to be back in the studio, and thank you for joining me. I do hope that you and yours are staying safe and healthy in this strange and frightening era we're living through. It goes without saying that COVID-19 has impacted so many of us on just about every aspect of life with disruptions to the way we live, work, and interact with one another. What's been particularly challenging is finding a way to bridge the chasm between science and the national response, which has left most of us relying on trusted media, medical advisors, and our better judgment to navigate daily business and inform choices we make to survive in a healthy way. What's been amazing to watch is how adaptable we've become. The cannabis industry is no exception. We're fortunate that most state leaders have had the fortitude to deem cannabis businesses as essential so that they can continue to help patients access the medicine they need to stay healthy. Before COVID-19, trade shows and expos provided business leaders with the best channels for networking and educating the public and provided consumers with a great way to learn about new products and speak with experts about ways in which cannabis can improve their health. Since those gatherings have been out of the question in this era of social distancing, that has created new challenges for cannabis businesses who must still find a way to produce and market their products. Trade publications and online events like CannaWorld Expo have provided effective alternatives for both consumers and companies. But when it comes to media, there are still challenges having to do with the legal disposition of cannabis. The FDA has yet to name hemp CBD as generally recognized as safe since granting epidiolics approval to be recognized as a drug. While at the time that appeared to be good news for the industry, as most thought it would pave the way for eventual legalization of CBD, in reality, it actually scheduled CBD, even CBD extracted from hemp, rather than remove CBD from the schedules of the Controlled Substances Act altogether. That created more of a gray area when it comes to advertising and marketing CBD to the public. 
There's only so much a cannabis producer can say about their products to educate consumers without receiving a dreaded notice from the FDA watchdogs. Now more than ever, consumers must rely upon editorial media to meet the growing demand for information about ways in which cannabis can help to strengthen their immunity and protect them from inflammation that makes infectious diseases like COVID so deadly. And in the absence of expos and educational events, businesses have become more reliant on both consumer and trade publications to connect with one another and meet consumers' growing demand for information about their products. That's the topic of today's show, and who better than a media expert to answer questions about how media can fill those gaps. As the founder and president of Cannabis Financial News, Frank Lane has a unique perspective about how cannabis companies have adapted to challenges posed by a global pandemic. Before focusing on the emerging cannabis and CBD markets and launching CFN Media in 2013, Frank spent the previous 15 years disrupting financial media to build and scale new products and services that drive revenue and growth. He was responsible for rolling out a targeted press release platform used by NASDAQ's Globe Newswire in 2019, and he's worked with leading companies and brands in the global capital and consumer markets to deliver digital communication strategies and services that help them to thrive. So Frank, I'm a huge fan of your publication and really look forward to this conversation. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. You're certainly welcome. So before we get into the nuts and bolts, why don't you give me a little bit of background on yourself, just so that our audience knows where you're coming from, and about your publication, how you came to your position. Yes, thank you. So I've been in the uh, the financial media space for almost 15 years, I actually came from a more technical background. I was an engineer uh, in school. And, and so um, when I left school, I, I was always on the, the sales and marketing side of things. But I always had an eye for um, looking at ways things were being done and making them more efficient. And that started in early uh, 2000s. Um, when uh, I formed a company that helped uh, companies uh, that were issuing press releases target that on financial media. And, um, and so when, when CFN was launched in 2013, um, I, I had built uh, media networks that reached investors. And what we saw in 2013 um, was the likely influx of cannabis companies coming into the space, but a dearth of mainstream media and IR and PR firms serving them because it was federally illegal. Um, and so we actually built out CFN as a, as a media network, uh, all digital, all internet. So um, site, mobile apps, social media, email, um, every way you reach people digitally, we built that. And then we started producing content and coverage on the space. And soon enough, companies were hiring us, uh, retaining us like a law firm or an advertising agency. And we would build out digital communications that would target investors and attract them to the companies. And primarily, your audience, you target people who are in the thick of the business. Is that correct? That's right. Our, our main audience are investors, but they range from everyday retail investors 
to more sophisticated accredited investors, all the way up to institutional investors that are active and following the cannabis and CBD industries. We have a couple of events coming up, one of which I know that you're going to be a part of. This is going to be a great way, I think, to engage people during this social distancing period that we're going through. Uh, Tell me a little bit about how you see that really helping companies who are in the CBD space, especially, to market their products during not only this time, but just in general, because we've seen so many changes and there are so many challenges for companies who are dealing with FDA regulations or the lack thereof, um, the lack of guidelines, and the changes that have occurred in the CBD industry specifically. Give me a little bit about that from your perspective. Yeah, it's a great question because, you know, even though we started out on the investor side, last year we decided to uh, branch out into the direct-to-consumer side to help CBD brands. And the reason we did that is we saw that, um, and we heard this in talking to CBD brands, that the, the number of CBD consumers seemed to have plateaued uh, late last year. Um, and I can explain why I think that happened. But at the same time, while that was happening, more and more CBD brands were launching. And you can just do the math and see that the outcome is that these CBD companies are struggling in terms of increasing their revenue. And it's because they're all fighting over the same finite audience. And that leads to decreased uh, pricing. And so one of the things we did is uh, when we launched our, our direct-to-consumer business line is really try to find new ways to reach consumers that aren't using CBD right now, but um, have heard about it, like the benefits, but they need to be educated. And so education is a, is a key thing. And like you said, with the FDA, so is compliance. The FDA has not given uh, really strong guidance And so there are some basic things that that cannabis brands need to be aware of in terms of making claims, um, putting it in in food and and, uh, and beverages. And so there is a need to not only help CBD brands reach new consumers and educate them, but do it in a compliant manner so that they uh, maintain their business standing, but also increase their revenue. There's a lot of, I think, oversaturation of the market as well in the CBD space. Tell me your thoughts about that. Yeah, there is. Um, I think, you know, we saw this in the cannabis industry where um, when the market was just starting out, people were getting licenses, the they were, it was a new market. So they were trying to figure out what would work, what wouldn't. And there was an influx of a lot of companies. And now we've seen over the last year, a lot of M&A activity where companies are consolidating. Um, and, you know, some of the more established companies that have the, uh, the best balance sheets are, are moving forward. I think um, we're not there with CBD yet. But I think we could be moving in that direction by the end of the year. I, I see people like Martha Stewart, who's obviously a global brand, announce that she will start 
a pet CBD line. And um, although this was announced before COVID-19, her intention was to launch that in September. And so I think people like her are banking that the FDA will provide clear guidelines. And when that happens, you'll see bigger brands with, with bigger balance sheets move in. Now they, they may buy smaller companies that have an established consumer base. So smaller companies still could thrive in, in that respect. But I do see as we move forward, um, a consolidation where you're gonna have fewer brands um, and they'll be scaling wider than they are now. Yeah, and I wonder how this will also impact some of the smaller companies that have really tried to come up or who have actually been the backbone of the industry when it first began, especially before the hemp bill passed and before the FDA really started taking an interest in this and before Epidiolex became the only approved CBD quote-unquote drug. You know, it, it just seems as though there's going to be some shifting going on. And and do you have any fears that the industry will be so dominated by these larger companies that the smaller companies won't survive? You know, I hope not. And, and again, to go back and, and use an analogy of uh, in cannabis, you know, in cannabis, it was who could grow the biggest uh, or who, who could build the biggest facility so that they could grow the most cannabis and, and what happened is that wasn't always the highest quality um, and so now you've got the emergence of craft uh, growers almost like in the beer industry where we saw uh, the Budweiser's and the big big beer beer makers um, they started being impacted by smaller craft uh, breweries that were regional mm -hmm. that were building um, with real high quality products and tastes and, and they're still thriving, and I'm seeing that with cannabis. So I, st I believe even though the CBD industry will consolidate around bigger brands, there'll still be an opportunity for smaller companies that are addressing niche um, audiences and needs to, to still continue thriving. You and I have spoken before about the issue of marketing CBD and how media outlets need to be careful, but also instructive to their clients, to the advertisers about how to position themselves without overstepping some of the uh, regulations that tell them that they can't talk about what their product does. How are you handling that with your advertisers and and what would your advice be to some of these companies? Yes, well, start with education on, on the basics of what we do know about the endocannabinoid system and why CBD um, is not only safe, but uh, effective. And I think that that's important. But when it comes to your products, really, talk about how they're made, um, the, the quality of the ingredients, um, and, and really um, don't go into um, the medical conditions that it can uh, address or treat, but rather highlight uh, actual user testimonials. Now you could do this through video and interviewing them, and that's uh, some of the work that we do for the brands, or through the reviews, and certainly, uh, you're not paying as a company those um, consumers for their testimonials and that's where they can actually share how it impacted their life 
and how they used it and the outcomes they've had. And that is compliant because you're not putting that into your paid marketing. Right. And yeah, messaging from outside sources is okay because it's basically reporting on those. And then what about their ads? I mean, they have the choice between sponsored content and and going that direction. And obviously, they have to be very careful when they do that. But in terms of advertising and reach, what else do you tell them about getting the word out to consumers uh, or new audiences? Right. Well, we've seen many different ways. There are some uh, CBD companies, and they tend to be a little bigger, but they'll hire a celebrity endorser or a brand ambassador that uh, aligns with their brand. And they will leverage that uh, ambassador's own influencer network to push out um, ads and offers of the products. Um, there, there are other ways of doing it where you can create your own events. Um, obviously now it would be more virtual, but you know when we're back to normalcy, there's events that you can create um, in the communities that will bring uh, people that are interested. Uh, also social media, it's very important that you build out uh, your social media and um, you're, you're putting out content that is interesting uh, for, for an audience. And then there's affiliate uh, marketing. You know, affiliate marketing is um, as old as the internet and uh, it u- utilizes private sites and networks and databases to uh, put out advertising. And uh, you're not reliant when you're doing affiliate marketing on national platforms like Google and Facebook that sometimes restrict those advertising. Um, and so affiliate marketing is very effective in this, in this industry. It's something that we can offer, but it's generally used throughout the CBD industry. And you can tell when a, when a brand is using affiliate marketing, when you go to their website, generally when you scroll down to the very bottom of the site, the footer, you will see links there like about us and so forth. And they will have a link to their affiliate program. Right. And then of course the outlets can share in the revenue of that as well, which is good. And these things sort of follow people around the web. So it doesn't, it doesn't really matter if they're, if they've clicked off the page, as long as they had clicked on it at least once when they go back. I've always found affiliate marketing to be a fascinating science. Actually, it's a little bit more above my pay grade, the technology of it, but it's pretty interesting. And you mentioned technology and that's really what makes it work. Um, Affiliate marketing and a lot of the, the, the new marketing around CBD is what I call pay for performance, performance-based marketing. Right. And what that means is you're, you're really only paying when an order is converted, a commission, if you will. And so um, there's software and technology that will monitor all of the affiliate sites that are um, carrying your advertising. And it will, the technology will measure the best performing channels and in real time, move your budget to those better performing channels. So it in effect optimizes um, your advertising spend so that you know you're getting the most out of it. And that means converting the most orders possible on your e-commerce site. Right. But going back to Cannabis Financial News, you've been reporting on so much that's happened in this industry for quite a while now. 
And how do you see the, the trends going in terms of the future of the cannabis industry? I mean, obviously, we're still dealing with federal prohibition of whole plant cannabis. And I think that there will be a lot of changes in the law in you know, the coming months, especially maybe after the election. I think a lot of people are actually running on cannabis legalization in terms of the Congress and, and senators. And I think people are a lot more open to policy change in this regard, but you still have a lot of the pushback from industries that will be impacted by cannabis legalization. But in terms of its financial future and just some of the trends that you've been able to observe through your publication, what do you think is going to happen? How do you think this is going to unfold in the future? Good question. I think there's two limiting factors right now. Well, actually three. In, and the two of them are, are kind of associated in, in the whole cannabis space. The, the first is banking. Mm. And, um, you know, because it's still federally illegal, it's very difficult for most cannabis touching companies to have normal banking. And the SAFE Act is a bill that is in Congress that would alleviate that, but it still hasn't been passed. And there are now new pushes because of the coronavirus. One of the positive impacts on cannabis has been that it's become an essential service. And that's why you see many of the states that have legal programs have kept their dispensaries open. So uh, medical and recreational um, uh, consumers can, can access it. Um, and so with that, Congress, many people in Congress are pushing to get a SAFE Act passed. That would change the whole dynamic. It would allow companies to bank. It would uh, take cash out of the system, which is not safe in many regards. It would also allow bigger investment entities to come into the space. Um, the second limiting factor, obviously, is uh, more states going legal and, of course, becoming federally legal. Now, what we're seeing with corona is it's sapping the budgets of many of the states. And those states have seen uh, other states like Colorado and now Massachusetts and uh, even California um, create a lot of tax receipts from, from their program. And that's going to incentivize other states that will have tap budgets after this corona um, is, is cycled through. And they're going to be motivated to um, either on a legislative base or a ballot base, uh, bring in a legal cannabis market into their states. Um, and so th those, I, I see both of those things accelerating as we, as we go through the year um, in terms of, you know, what's going to propel the cannabis industry to get even bigger. Yeah. And was there a third one or is, because we have the, the safe banking, right? Yes, the safe banking. And kickstarting the economy. Yes. And really, it's either getting more states. So it almost becomes right now, I think we're um, at 12 or 13 that are legal, and then 30 plus that are medical. And so the more states we can get, I think they'll become a tipping point where it'll be easier to have a federal. Uh, regime come in and, and make it federally legal. 
Yeah, and certainly the demand is there. I mean, it's it's not as if uh, politicians will risk their careers for supporting cannabis reform. <laughs> I remember the third one. The third one's the black market. So you have the okay. banking. That's got to come in. You, you need more states to go legal, and that's going to happen, especially now that these states that will be sapped, uh, their budget sapped from corona, um, fighting corona, they'll see other, they've seen other states really benefit in having programs, but it's also the black market. And what that means is um, shutting, doing things to shut down the black market. We saw this in Canada where it took them longer to do that, but now their efforts have really um, benefited the legal cannabis uh, market there. Here, here in the United States, California, the same thing. Um, the, the governments ha initially did not take the time and resources to shut down the black market. And, and it's also incumbent on the, the brands themselves. They need to make high quality, um, co you know, low cost products, and that will get people away from the black markets and into the, the legal markets. But the governments need to help too. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And you know, if you think about how much money still goes into cannabis or black market drugs in general, and that's money that's leaving our economy. And with an economy that's suffering like it is right at the moment, you would think that that would be a very important objective, you know, for the Department of Justice or just in general. Yeah, it, it would be nice. Um, I've actually been an advocate for legalizing all drugs um, because you, you take out a lot of the danger of illicit drugs once they're regulated. And also all that money, I mean, because... You're never really going to squelch the appetite for drugs in America. And just not. I mean, the war on drugs has been an abysmal failure. <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> and of course, you know, prohibition of cannabis, it's been said, is, is one of the most egregious abuses of uh, justice there has been ever. In the people that are still sitting in jail because of three strikes laws just it's beyond comprehension. Precisely. But at this point, too, I mean, you know, the, the medical science, and I think that a lot of the research that was coming out of Israel and Spain and Australia early on, when the movement to legalize really started, the science is so undeniable at this point. It just seems ridiculous that it's still Schedule One at all. You know, there's just no reason for it whatsoever. So... <laughs> especially, especially now that we've had the opiate crisis, I think mm -hmm. there's just a confluence of events that will elevate um, the usefulness of of cannabis, given uh, that that crisis, and uh, and like you said, that more science and research is occurring, even on a federal level. Um, I think all of that's going to come together in and really um, make cannabis a um, an essential part of of people's options in in trying to have better health. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I actually interviewed Dr. Judy Mikovits recently, and she's a microbiologist who has worked on a number of pandemics in the past. She worked on creating plant-based medicines for HIV/AIDS, and she also worked on the Ebola virus through the National Institute of Health and the Cancer 
um, National Cancer Institute as well back in the day. And she has come right out and said cannabis is a necessary therapy during this pandemic, not only to quiet the nerves of people who are completely rattled by this entire thing and the government's response to it, but also to quiet the raging immune system when people do get infected, because this really does, um, the virus thrives in inflammation. And the stress causes more inflammation. And of course, we all know cannabis addresses the stress. Right. <laughs> so, you know, there's a there's a really good opportunity here, I would think, you know, for and, and I think any any uh, any legislators that push for this, they're going to be heroes at the end of the day, because I think cannabis already is saving lives. But especially now, it's sort of a necessary therapy. And we'll see what happens. Of course, it's never mentioned in the in the briefings that go on every day. Right. <laughs> I think it should be, but it's not. Right. But also, you know, in terms of the media coverage of this, too, it really has been the media driving a lot of the changes that have happened. But in terms of the different media outlets that have been talking about cannabis for so many years, the financial reporting, I think, is really key to reaching legislators. Have you found that? Are they part of your audience, do you think? It's a great question. And yes, and when I say investors, I, I should add that it's uh, our audience is also all of the constituents, the, uh, the, the, the lawyers, the regulators, um, the uh, obviously the other business people, uh, the companies. It, it really is that. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, Fast Money, which is a, a popular show on CNBC, um, they regularly cover the cannabis industry. In fact, one person on that uh, show is, um, is, is very uh, active in cannabis. Um, mm. And he, he talks about it regularly. So it's, it's made the mainstream. The problem is there's really only a handful of companies uh, cannabis companies that are listed on the major exchanges like an NYSE and a NASDAQ. And uh, many of them are on junior exchanges here um, uh, in the U.S. And uh, only a few are on the major exchanges in Canada, which, which really don't compare in size. So I think the reason it, it doesn't get a lot of coverage by mainstream media is that there just aren't enough uh, good companies to talk about. Um, but it, at least they are talking about it and, and the regulators are paying attention. That's interesting. And it seems there were some laws. I don't know if it was going to be part of the Safe Banking Act, but something that would open up the U.S. exchanges, because there are a couple that are traded on the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, but they're few and far between. And, and I'm not really sure what the regulations are in terms of um, bringing them here, but are they mainly Canadian companies that are trading on the U.S. stock exchange? I don't think they're U.S. companies. That's it, precisely it. So to be on the, the major exchanges like NASDAQ and NYSE, the companies can't be breaking federal law. So they are Canadian companies that have Canadian operations. And of course, it's federally legal in Canada. So they're not breaking any law and they can uh, list. But there's also a few CBD companies. There's one called CBDMD, 
Their ticker is YCVD, and they're on the New York Stock Exchange. And they're not breaking laws either because they're abiding by the hemp bill in providing uh, hemp-derived CBD. And so as, as long as you're uh, abiding by the federal guidelines, but you're right, if you're touching cannabis and you're U.S.-based and you're operating in the U.S., you can really only be uh, listed on Canadian exchanges as your ma major exchange and then on the over-the-counter here in the U.S., which is um, a junior exchange. You can't be on the NASDAQ or, um, or the NYSE. And per your reporting, is that, do you think that that's really going to hamper or, or limit some of these companies from actually getting the capital that they need? Yeah, it, it, it is. I mean, it, it's interesting. Um, a few years ago, you saw an influx of U.S. companies that had U.S. cannabis operations list on the Canadian Stock Exchange in Canada, the CSE. And um, they were the only exchange, uh, Canadian exchange, that allowed U.S. companies that were essentially breaking federal law to list on their exchange. And in mm -hmm. doing so, that allowed these companies to gain capital um, through, through Canadian banks and even U.S. banks that were then um, being affiliates in Canada. So it really did help the, the whole industry grow. Many of the top cannabis companies that are in the U.S., multi-state operators, um, they are all listed on the CSE. And it was important for them because it allowed them to get that funding. But now that funding is tighter and it's harder to get, um, not being on a major U.S. exchange really hurts the companies because they can't access institutional capital. Mm. And that's why the banking and the federal laws need to change so that cannabis companies can be treated like mainstream companies and access capital the way that, that other companies do. And what about the private equity funds that are supporting a lot of these startups and yeah. even some getting, you know, raising capital for some of the larger operations as well. Some of them are public companies, aren't they? What makes it okay for them to do that legally? Do you know? Well, there's, um, there, well, accredited investors um, that are, meet a certain criteria in terms of their in, income and assets um, they can invest in private cannabis companies, and um, they they that that is a, uh, a very important way for private cannabis companies that are not public to access capital. Mm -hmm. um, and th these uh, accredited investors um, have formed groups and entities, even even public entities, and um, they can invest in them. But of course, if they go public. And they're in the U.S. operating in the U.S. They have to list on a Canadian exchange, right? So yeah, it's just it's all interesting. And and we're also seeing what's 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 interesting, Snowden, is we are now also seeing crowdfunding um, starting to become uh, a useful uh, channel for private companies to raise capital. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, Republic is a mainstream crowdfunding platform. So if you were building an ice cream company, you could go on that platform and use what's called Regulation CF and raise up to $5 million through individual retail investors that are investing as little as $25. Mm -hmm. 
and the platform will aggregate all of that. Well, we've seen cannabis companies go into platforms like that and raise millions of dollars um, through through the crowdfunding regulation. And um, these these companies are usually uh, consumer-based cannabis companies that have affinity groups, you know, users of their products. And so that this is a, an emerging way for cannabis companies, private companies to raise capital, um, knowing that mainstream capital is just not available right now. Interesting, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. Well, I think that there's so much that we need to do right now to bring more fairness into the cannabis industry. I think it's been lacking for a long time. But again, I, I don't think it'll happen really until we have sort of a changing of the guards in, in Congress, both at the congressional and the Senate level. I agree. But, yeah. And everyone was so afraid that Jeff Sessions would put the kibosh on the entire industry. And there were a lot of threats that happened during his time. And it, it seems as though AG Barr isn't really quite as interested in doing any damage to the cannabis industry, but he certainly hasn't helped it. Let's put it that way. Yes, I agree. You know, it, it was great. We got through the, the whole sessions period, but I think the administration and just Congress in general, they've all agreed to just keep the rider going where uh, no federal funds will be used to interfere with uh, legal state operations. And, um, and I know that Trump is, is really pushing it off to the states. So I feel like the industry is going to be protected no matter who is in office, but I do see an opportunity um, if there's a change for more state, well, regardless if there's a change federally, more states, I see more states going um, legal. The coronavirus has stymied a few states like New York that had planned to do it earlier, but now their budget's depleted. But I think it's going to be a net positive in the end because um, when we're through this, a lot of states are going to be hurting in terms of their budgets and they're going to see other states make big tax receipts um, from having legal state program. So I think it's going to be a net positive. I think more states are going to go legal. And uh, I think next year we could even see, depending on who's in office, um, the, the SAFE Act, the Banking Act, move through Congress. And, and then hopefully at some point when that happens, really um, open up a federal regime and make it federally legal. Yeah, it's inevitable. It's no longer a matter of if, but when and just getting through some of the red tape of doing it. There's also another sweeping reform bill that has sailed through the Judiciary Committee and is now awaiting a floor vote. And I have a feeling that COVID is interrupting that process as well. Everything is is up in the air right now, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, gosh. Well, I think it'll be particularly interesting when things do open up legally to see what happens to the media and the reporting and how audiences will respond to it and how the demand will fluctuate. Um, You know, and especially now that we're, we're seeing a lot of prices drop in the CBD market, especially, you know, in hemp, It, it used to be that hemp could command a much higher price than it can today. 
What do you think about that? Do you think that the laws opening up will actually help to bring the prices back up so that it's worth the while of hemp farmers to continue to grow the crop? Yeah, it's a great point. And it goes back to what I was saying about the demand. It, it is a supply and demand scenario where I think what happened is when the farm bill passed in 2018, like anything, it created a lot of exuberance. And I think that the hemp farmers overbuilt. And at the back end of it, the consumer, the FDA wasn't given clarity. And so they were growing all this hemp, but there wasn't enough demand for that in CBD products. And so I, I see that supply and demand normalizing once the FDA can come out and say that CBD is a supplement, can be treated like a vitamin, and give clear guidance in um, marketing, selling, and using CBD. And I think when that happens, you, you'll have a spike, a sustained spike in demand. And then I think prices will rise again and farmers, hemp farmers probably have learned a lot. And I think you'll have a, a market that will normalize where hemp farmers, it'll make sense for them to start growing again. Yeah. And what about, are you reporting anything on the infrastructure build out for products other than CBD using biomass of hemp? You know, we haven't touched on that too much. Um, what are you seeing in that regard? Well, I see that there's a demand for hemp products that can help to diminish the dependence on fossil fuels. Right, on the industrial side. On the industrial side, yeah. Yeah, I know, I know that there are companies that really want to use uh, hemp to, to replace plastics in cars, um, all, all kinds of uses. And I think that that was one of the intentions of the Farm Bill was to allow um, the industrialization of it as a, as a product. Uh, we haven't covered that too much, but I'm hoping that that is a good outcome because I know it'll be good for the environment and, um, and it will also uh, allow a new set of companies to thrive. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, aside from the obvious, you know, reducing of the carbon emissions and doing away with a lot of the chemicals that are being used to grow the crops that are processed into biofuel right now, you know, the Roundup Ready <laughs> corn, for example, which is poisoning our water tables. Don't even get me started on that. It's a big mess, but hemp can be grown more sustainably than cotton as well and produce textiles that are far more durable than cotton and cleaner than cotton and don't cause so many health problems. So it'll be interesting to see. I'd really like to see a bigger push on that as much as CBD in Congress, you know, getting the the incentives built out, because there's no reason for us to be giving $11 billion tax break to Exxon, for example, when hemp companies could be making biofuel and making plastics and all of the other things that are made out of fossil fuels. Exactly. And I hope there's a charismatic leader in this, almost like an Elon Musk has been to uh, electric cars mm -hmm. and now space travel. I hope that a charismatic figure emerges in that space that can show America in the media that using um, hemp-derived uh, products is a benefit. And I think, yeah. I think we're missing that. Yeah. Yeah. A champion. We need a champion.
For a while there, I thought it would be someone like Sir Richard Branson or... Yes. He's been an advocate of uh, cannabis law reform for a long time. So in case he's out there listening someplace, let's hope that, <laughs> yeah, someone someone needs to take the lead. I mean, Henry Ford back in the day really tried. Yes. He, he had built out a car that was made mainly with hemp composites, and he grew hemp himself and used uh, hemp to make his biofuel. So we need that in this country. So what else do you have a burning desire for our, our audiences to know? You know, it's, it's that we are, the challenge of this industry, I always tell people, is it, it, there's, there's, there's a lot of promise, um, but oftentimes it's a kind of a two-step forward, one-step back analogy. Um, but I do believe that, that things like COVID, although it's, it's such a bad thing, it's, it's really changed the perception of cannabis from really being illegal to essential mm -hmm. in, in many ways. And I think at, when COVID's done, the, you know, these cannabis companies have found new ways to get their products to consumers, cur curbside pickup, delivery. I really think it's going to accelerate how the industry will take on new consumers. Um, and I, I do believe that with, with the CBD industry, there's going to be clarity. The FDA has even said that they can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, that there's such consumer demand for it. They are going to create pathways to, you know, to allow consumers to safely buy CBD. So I think the back half of this year could be instrumental for the industry. Um, and I think next year, really, it could be growing faster than it's ever, ever been growing. Yeah. And I, I wonder how, how companies can actually, I hate to say this, capitalize on this tragic circumstance that we're in right now to position themselves for that change. Do you have any ideas about that? Well, if they're in business now, they're probably doing it in, in getting um, the products to, to consumers. Um, and, you know, a lot of the states have allowed cannabis companies to deliver the product, uh, to provide it on curbside. These, these were options that, that were not allowed before mm -hmm. coronavirus. And mm -hmm. so I think it's just leveraging um, what is available now to get your products to, to consumers and, and continue building that consumer base. And then you know, if, if you're not in business yet, look at new ways to solve problems. And, um, and, th and those problems have been logistical in, in getting uh, consumers and the products together. Um, I, I think what you'll see on the CBD side as we move forward are, are marketplaces, almost like an Amazon where you can go in um, and be educated about CBD, um, help um, in, uh, in terms of finding the right CBD product for you and then making it easy for you to order that and, and get it delivered. So I think um, there's going to be new marketplace technologies. Um, and there's going to be new ways of getting these products to consumers like we're already seeing now um, with, with coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It is, it, this has just been such a trying time for so many people. 
But if there's any good that can come out of it, I think it'll be just a, a greater awareness of um, <laughs> what's essential. You know, exactly. I think it's helped change the perception of cannabis and put it in a more positive light um, in that it, it is it is essential. And, um, you know, everywhere that it's legal in the U.S., there really hasn't been a bad outcome. I mean, um, where, where it's legal, we've seen uh, crime actually go down. Um, um, adolescent oh. use go down. Opiate use has gone down. Opiate use has gone down. You know, the data is just clear that it's been really a societal benefit. Mm -hmm. And now that it's deemed essential, I think that um, it's, it's a shot in the arm for the industry. And I think that that coupled with regulation changes, I, I think are really going to boost the industry. You can call it a second wave, um, but I think the hype is really out of of the whole um, of the whole industry, and it's it's really creating the right products for the right consumers and getting you know and getting the products to consumers. That's what it's all about now. Yeah, yeah, I th I think you're right, and you know, and then how can media outlets like ours actually help to affect that? Right. Yeah, I think I think there's still a lot of education that needs to to go on, and I'm I'm seeing it now. There's a lot of virtual conferences, and um, I see all kinds of topics through, throughout, you know, every way to think about cannabis. And so I think that there's, there's just a lot, a lot of opportunity for education. And um, I think that through education, that's when um, innovation occurs. Yeah. Well, and also through hardship too. And, you know, there are a lot of businesses out there suffering right now. Right. And the cannabis industry is there's no exception in there as well, even though it has been deemed an essential business. I, I think that there has been some slowing down of production and investment and all of that. Have you observed that as well? Yeah. You know, we saw the contraction of the investment side um, start last summer. So I, I believe in many ways the cannabis industry has been hit twice, really. You know, the, the capital crunch did start last year. Um, and a lot of that was the kind of the things we've already been talked about, uh, talking about here, where the size of the industry didn't materialize uh, as fast as we thought. A lot of that was because the black market is still thriving. The regulations in Canada and the U.S. have inhibited um, the rollout in, in many respects. And a lot of the companies that raised capital um, did not um, deploy that in a way that, it, that created a lot of profits. And so mm. investors started pulling back late last year and into this year before coronavirus. It, it, was, it was becoming more difficult for companies to raise capital. Then when coronavirus hit, um, made it even more difficult. Um, Although again, it it, uh, it turned cannabis into an essential uh, product, but yes, it, it's really created uh, some hardships. And um, and you know, I hope the hope is that the companies that can survive this um, will will be stronger on on the on the back end. Yeah. Well, let's hope so. Let's hope so. Any parting thoughts? Parting thoughts are that. You know, pe people should take heart in the fact that um, the cynicism of, of the industry that we saw years ago 
has really gone away. And, you know, it's, it's really an essential service and product right now. And there are lots of innovations that are occurring that I see all the time um, in light of the, uh, the, the lack of regulations in banking. And um, I, I see the, the industry really growing uh, once coronavirus is, is, you know, done in the back half of this year. And, uh, and, and that makes me confident that you'll see companies thrive, you'll see new companies thrive, and, and I think that will be good for everyone. I couldn't agree more. So, well, Frank, thank you so much for all of your insights. This has been great. Thank you so much, Nona, and I thank your audience for tuning in and, uh, and all the best. Awesome. Thank you, Frank. So once again, it is time to bring yet another show to a close. I'd like to personally thank our guest, Frank Lane, for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about him and see a fan, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode, and there you will find his bio along with a link to his website. We have so many others to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude to our radio partners, Blue Mountain Energy and Canisphere Biotech. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank our team here at the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show for always making us shine. And of course, it goes without saying how much we appreciate our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for distributing our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for joining. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join me again next week. Same time, same place for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Let's face it, indoor agriculture consumes massive amounts of energy. Between cooling high-intensity grow lights and regulating climate in large facilities, electric fields can run a successful grow operation into the red. If this sounds familiar, I can tell you that you need a powerful climate control system that won't drain your green. I'm Eric Riccardi with Blue Mountain Energy. Our state-of-the-art HVAC systems are powered by natural gas and propane, which means you can reduce your electricity use by as much as 80% and get your grow operation back in the black and maximize your growing space. Visit BlueMountainEnergy.com to schedule your free energy assessment and see how Blue Mountain Energy can put that green back in your pocket.